reaching from way down here. Yeah. Yeah. From way down here. Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ. Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah D'Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. Welcome back to Thread. <laughs> my name is Dave Pachta, and I'm with my friend, Hannah Hello. D'Souza. Hannah, I'm so excited about today. You're going to lead our conversation today. Yeah, me too. Yeah, you did the welcome today. So maybe that threw people off. I'm going to do a little bit more of the welcome. But before I <laughs> jump into the content, I want to know how Gilgamesh is doing. Can you see him? He should be right behind me. Yeah, he's back there on the... On yeah, normal, on little guy. Fireplace. So the leaves are dropping, but I think I could Google it and it is normal for bonsai trees at this time of year to lose their leaves. I'm not too concerned, but hopefully you'll see him. Okay. We're going to hold you accountable to keeping Gilgamesh okay, alive. That's, that's a lot so, of pressure. <laughs> right. So today we're on episode 14 and we're going to talk about Sarah and Hagar. So this is... We're now kind of entering into the middle part of our series on God's people birthed. It's our third episode. So we have talked about Abraham. We talked about the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. We now start moving on to other characters. And I'm looking forward to hearing all the things you have to tell us about Sarah and Hagar. Yes. Well, before I jump in, I should say there's no way we could do justice to these two wonderfully complex women and both the beauty and the pain that are present in both of their stories. But I'm glad we are dedicating this episode to them and I hope it will be a launching pad to further study too. But what I do see from my study of Sarah and Hagar, I should say I'm probably going to use Sarah and Sarah interchangeably as well as Avram and Abraham. So disclaimer. But what I do see in this in their stories, the story of these two women, is God continually adapting and making provision for human failings and human weaknesses. We've used this image before of a tapestry. And what I see in this story is God perhaps weaving in threads that maybe were not part of the initial design, but um, incorporating them into this, this pattern that we was, that have become the Hebrew Bible and has, have become this narrative. And we see this tale of two women, really, that's kind of sandwiched between two iterations of the covenant. So we talked about Genesis 15 in our episode on Abraham, where it's this reiteration of the promise to, to Avram. And then Genesis 17, which is the chapter after Sarah and Hagar, and we, we see God introduce the covenant of circumcision. But in between these two significant interactions between God and Avram, we get these two women. And we can jump into the narrative itself. And I'm going to do what Dave does to me normally and hand it over to, to him to read the narrative <laughs> right. here. So it's Genesis 16, verse 1 to 4. Fantastic. Genesis 16, 1 through 4. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. 
Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Yeah, so from the outset, we see Sarah's barrenness casts a shadow over the promise that Yahweh has made of this promise of future descendants and them being a great nation. And it begins from the very beginning, she had borne him no children, which as we know for that time, I mean, still, but for that time in particular, there was great shame even that with that that came with infertility. And so we see here Sarah take matters into her own hands. And for contemporary readers, this story is perhaps very shocking to see her give her maidservant to her husband to sleep with, to have an heir through her servant. But we see Rachel do this later on when she gives her servant Bilhau to Jacob when she is also barren. So it is a trope or a trend that we see, this idea of, oh, my servant can produce an heir for me. And they're very much considered property in that way. I think what's interesting is it's likely that Hagar was part of this gift that was given to Abraham by Pharaoh um, earlier on in Genesis 12 when they're in Egypt and they've uh, left Canaan to go down to Egypt during the famine. And it's interesting that the narrative doesn't comment on whether this is sanctioned by God. Like maybe they were meant to wait that famine out, but they, even in that decision to leave, perhaps that's also them together taking matters into their own hands. But they go down to Egypt and we have this weird interaction with Pharaoh and um, he ends up gifting Abraham, Abraham because of Sarah, sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys. And it also says male and female servants in Genesis 12, verse 16. And there's many people think Hagar was included in this gift. So perhaps even her very presence as a servant in their household was not part of the initial plan, but she's here and she's used in this way. But I think what is clear is while this was a custom of the day, perhaps to do this kind of thing, God clearly wanted his chosen nation to operate differently from the surrounding nations. And this was not part of his plan, at least. What we see here is very interesting, this dynamic of Sarah and Abraham. And it's not unlike actually what we've seen earlier with Adam and Eve. And I think that's one of many parallels we'll see as we go throughout this episode. But it's this trend of these two matriarchs taking matters into their own hands. And actually we see this agency of Sarah. She's like, go take my, go take my, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Even that idea of let me build a family through her, it kind of has echoes of Babel even or Babel. Let me build a name for myself. But then we also see the passivity of Abraham and similarly the passivity of Adam there in just accepting this plan. And even the linguistically, there's a, a parallel with in the same way we see Eve giving Adam the, the fruit to eat and him taking it. It's also the similar language here. Sarai, his wife, took her slave and gave to her husband. And that's such an interesting dynamic there. Mm. There's a, a commentary on the Bible by a popular kind of Bible teacher called David Guzik. And he has this quote here. Maybe you can read that, Dave. Yeah, yeah. He says, whatever a man or woman attempts to do without God will be a miserable failure or an even more miserable success. 
Yeah, and I think it's definitely the latter that we see here. It's Yes, Hagar gets pregnant and we see that, but it does seem to be an even more miserable success. And I think Sarah even doesn't fully realize the implications of everything that will follow from this decision to take matters into her own hands when it came to the promise. And we can continue here. And maybe you can read this part too, Dave. So it's Genesis 16, 4 to 6. Yeah, it says, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows that she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar. And so she fled from her. We mentioned the parallel with Adam and Eve earlier. And similarly, we see Sarah then blame Abraham after this incident happens, which also happens with with Adam and Eve. But I think even just hearing you read that again, it's kind of shocking to see this is our chosen matriarch (laughs) and the way that she is treating Hagar and both of them, actually. It's... I know even when we were talking about them as characters earlier on, I said that I can wrestle with her character quite a bit. And it's even seeing her come up in Hebrews 11 as this in the hall of faith. When we read this initial story of her in Genesis, it's kind of unsettling to see her held up in this way when actually we see, wow, this is really troubling behavior. And there's a an Old Testament scholar called Tivka, I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, but we'll have it in the show notes, Tivka Frymakensky. And she even notes that in this narrative, neither Avram nor Sarai ever calls Hagar by her name. It's this slave girl, mm. um, which is very revealing. That's something so consistent with Hebrew narrative, mm. right? So whenever we see in Hebrew narrative a specific name, it shows respect and honor and there's a lot of times when someone's referred to and their name is not used their proper name and it actually can it communicates a distance or a contempt or a lack of an emotional connection Mm. so that is significant that you bring that up that they don't call hagar by her name yeah definitely it's clearly she is property and acquired in the same way as the camels and the, the other servants and things The Midrash, which is basically an additional ancient Jewish commentary on the text. It's very interesting reading some stories in the Midrash because it's almost like there's an anxiety to show Sarah as justified in her behavior or to make her seem better than the actual text presents her. And in the the Midrash, you see some additional stories of that paint Hagar in a very negative light and suggest that Sarah was justified in her treatment of her. And it does seem to be, oh, we need to portray Sarah better than the biblical text. But I actually think it's very revealing that we get this very unfiltered picture of the, the chosen couple and this chosen matriarch. Her behavior is very human in many ways. And as we go through, I think what I'm, I see in Sarah is she really embodies the pain that comes with waiting, with waiting for a, the fulfillment of a promise. But I think I've grown in my sympathy to her by remembering actually that when the promises are made and reiterated to Abraham, it doesn't say explicitly through whom this promised child will come. 
And actually, it doesn't mention Sarah by name until Genesis 18. And so for Sarah, there might have been a very real insecurity that maybe this is a promise for Abraham and it's not for me, especially as we, the, the Bible notes that she was old and advanced in years. And we hear her say in the narrative, the Lord has kept me from having children. And I imagine there's a great pain in that statement. Psalm 119 has the speaker in the psalm also speaks to the pain of waiting. And I think actually I can picture Sarah resonating with a lot of what is said in that psalm. And it says in verse 81 of Psalm 119, I am worn out waiting for your rescue. My eyes are straining to see your promises come true. When will you comfort me? I'm shriveled like a wineskin in the smoke. How long must I wait? Mm, amazing. Mm. You know, this, this is so real for so many of us that live in this relationship with Yahweh or with God that we are waiting on God's promises to be filled in our own, fulfilled in our own life. So mm. your point about sympathy is is significant right these people that we read about struggled with the same things we do most of us want god's promises to be fulfilled this month <laughs> or this year or in six years maybe but that's a long time to wait but we see her waiting much much mm. longer for these promises to be fulfilled and our temptation to compromise Definitely. is real yeah i actually think from the time of the promise first being made to the birth of Isaac is 25 years. So definitely more than we would expect. But what I see, yeah, so looking at Sarah, I guess, and thinking about what she embodies, I think she speaks to the pain of waiting, whether it's waiting for children, waiting for a spouse, waiting for healing, waiting for a job, perhaps waiting for clarity, waiting for the answer for a prayer you've prayed for many years. And ultimately, it's waiting on God. And I think, as you said, we can all resonate with this in some way. I also see in Sarah this trope of the barren woman, which will be a key theme throughout the, the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so you have to define trope for us when you say the trope of barrenness. Yeah, what do, do you mean? I like the word trope. I think, so trend, I guess, <laughs> would be a synonym or trope. <laughs> or theme theme like a that reappears is yeah that, is that a good enough description yeah yeah <laughs> theme's good yeah it's a it's something that's introduced that we see repeated it's a it's a typology mm. it's a it's a repeated theme mm. yeah good trope's okay. a good word Thank i just you. you know thought we should stop and talk no, that's about good. it that <laughs> go ahead good. go ahead i do the same thing to you <laughs> exactly i get to play the reverse no, role now see how fun that is I, one of my classes last semester was on Genesis, and actually I decided to write my final paper on barrenness in the, in the Old Testament because I kept seeing it appear. And, and it's really interesting that three of the four kind of matriarchs in Genesis, so it's, we've got Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and we get Hannah later on too, they all are barren to begin with. And I think it's a really interesting feature of these chosen women that begins in this kind of emptiness, this longing, this impossible, impossible situation. And I think God likes to use impossible situations and kind of insert himself to show the, the miraculous nature of the, or the miraculous way in which he works. The story already shows us 
And this is a new theme, right? This is a new thing that's being introduced. So God chooses Abraham, and now we move into these less than ideal characters that are going to work with this relationship with Yahweh to see his promises fulfilled. And what it shows us right away is that Yahweh is the faithful one. As we saw in Genesis 15 and the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, Yahweh is the faithful one. Yahweh is the one to make sure that this all happens. Even though we falter and you know, fail miserably, mm. Yahweh is the faithful Definitely. one. Yeah. And I think he wouldn't, the glory wouldn't be there if everything was simple and easy from the beginning. So, and what we get with Sarah is this laughter of disbelief that we see in Genesis 18, then turns into laughter of joy in Genesis 21, which reminds me of a similar sentiment that's expressed in Psalm 126, where it talks about our mouths being filled with laughter uh, when we see the Lord has done great things and we see this kind of mm. change great. of spirit in Sarah. And of course, Isaac gets his name from that laughter too. But then mm. there's Hagar or Hagar. We were talking earlier about how we pronounce her name. We're probably butchering them all. But. Yeah, where we're we going. <laughs> we're doing Hagar, yes. right? We're going with Hagar. So maybe we can, you can read this here, Dave. So it's Genesis 16, verse 7 to 16. This is after oh, yeah. she has fled into the wilderness following this mistreatment of Sarah. That's right. And we did choose specifically to read this from a different translation because it holds some of the important name pieces. Mm. So we're going to be using the new updated edition of the NRSV for this reading. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. Mm. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael. For the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El-Rai, or she said, have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahai Rai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar, or Hagar, bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. You know, the reason we wanted to keep this in the NRSV particularly was when she names God, she says El Royi. El is something we're going to see come up a lot in our future episodes. El is, means God. So like Bethel or Peniel are names of God that we see people interact with. So they, when they see God, they name God. So El is God, then Royi is the one who sees. So when she says El Royi, she says the God who sees. Mm. 
It's also fun to look at the, the name of the well, Be'er Lahai Ra'i. Be'er is, is well or source of water, Lahai, the living one, and then Ra'i, as we've said, the one who sees me. So she's actually naming this well, the well of the living one who sees me. So fascinating, mm-hmm. right? So I do have a question for you here too. Yeah. Why do you think Yahweh addresses her so he says her name, Hagar, because you mentioned that, that before Abram and Sarah don't call her by her name. So God, Yahweh does. Yahweh calls her by her name, Hagar, but also slave of Sarai. So recognizing her place. Mm-hmm. And, and the other question I have for you is, how are we to think about him being this wild donkey of a man? You know, what is all that uh, about? Ishmael? Can you give us any insight? Yeah. Oh, you're asking the big questions today. I think, well, I actually do think it's significant that the first thing God calls her is by her name. Whether this is her, the name she was given by her parents, we don't know because Hagar hey, hey does mean sojourner or foreigner. But I think it stands out that this is never a name that Avram and Sarai use at all. It's slave. So, with God addressing her, it's like he, he sees her and it go back, goes back to this is the one who sees me. He, he calls her by her name here, but then also identifies her status right now, slave of Sarai. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's an understanding yep. there that I know this is your situation. I see you. And right. it goes hand in hand with the where have you come from and where are you going? Um, I think he's maybe pointing out a point, uh, yeah, addressing the fact that I know where you've come from and maybe she's trying to return home. I don't know. But so, yeah, I guess that's what I say to that. But it's a challenging passage to wrestle with. And yeah, the prophecy or this promise that's given to Ishmael, you're right. It's not the most favorable sounding. <laughs> Actually reminds me of prophecies that come later, which also are not and don't sound the nicest like Esau the promise that's given to Esau and his hand being against his brothers. And I think it does speak to the hardship that will be inevitable for Ishmael, where it says he'll kind of be live at odds with all of his kin. And we see that definitely take place in their dis- in the animosity that exists between, between their descendants. But I think what's important is, yes, that's part of Ishmael's future, but it also says that God will remain with him as he grows up. And I think that's a really important part of this narrative that though the narrative doesn't follow Ishmael in the same way as it does Isaac and his descendants, that he's not forgotten by God and God is present with him even in um, his hardship. And actually, I think what's also interesting though with the wild donkey imagery there is they are free. <laughs> While donkeys are free, they roam and they have kind of autonomy. And maybe even it was speaking to this idea of he won't be born a slave. He won't uh, be under oppressed in the same way as his mother. And yeah, we do see that Ishmael is kind of a nomadic. It goes on to be the father of the nomadic peoples, the Bedouin. So maybe that's what it's speaking to, but people are welcome to write in the comments if you're on YouTube what you think in response to those questions. As you mentioned before, Dave, I think names are very significant in scripture. So we see here Hagar naming God, which is incredibly empowering. She's the first person in the Hebrew Bible. I actually don't know if she is the only, that's some research I have to do, but to give God a name. And then we see 
the names of Sarah and Hagar together. It's Sarah is princess and Hagar is, as I said, sojourner, foreigner, which almost seems like a fairy tale here. We have like the princess versus the foreigner. If it was a fairy tale, I think the foreigner would be quickly eliminated from the narrative. And that's not what we see here. What's a clear message that I take from these stories is that Yahweh sees the outsider. And I've mentioned in earlier podcasts, I took a class on liberation theology. And it's very interesting to see the way that Hagar is actually a key figure in liberation theology and womanist theology. Um, she is this symbol of liberation, of empowerment, and kind of the mother of the marginalized. There's a book I read a couple of years ago called Sisters in the Wilderness by Dolores Williams, who it's all about Hagar as this mother of people on the peripheries and women on the peripheries. But what's also significant here is it's the first time we see the angel of the Lord appear to a person. And we'll see it later on. The angel of the Lord will appear to Abraham in Genesis 20, Moses, Gideon, Elijah, and kind of later on in the, in the Old Testament. But this is the first appearance here. And it's interesting. Some people say, is this an angel sent by Yahweh or is this Yahweh incarnate? Because there are times when the angel speaks in first person. I'm not sure, but I think it's incredibly empowering that this is the interaction that this outsider, that this slave woman has with the almighty God. Now, what the angel says to Hagar might be startling to people. It, she says, return to your mistress and submit to her, which might seem harsh, but a trend we see in scripture is that these angels, these messengers of God, usually have these threefold messages. So we have this first part of the, the message is, is return and go back and submit. But the second part is greatly will I multiply your descendants, your seed, so that it cannot be counted. And the third part is this announcement of a birth that will come. You will have a son and call him Ishmael. And actually, this promise here that's given to her has echoes of the promise to Abraham, which is very empowering. And there's... I've mentioned Tikva Frymakensky before, and in her book, Rereading the Women of the Bible, she speaks to this uh, announcement from the angel, and she says, the second address makes Hagar the only woman to receive a divine promise of seed, not through a man, but as her own destiny. And the third statement puts Hagar in the company of those few women, Samson's mother, Hannah, and Mary in the New Testament, who receive a divine annunciation of the coming birth. So all those women would go on to have children with special destinies and were addressed directly and not through their husband. So it's this incredibly empowering image of the one that's called the outsider. And Ishmael, like Jacob, will go on to have 12 sons and Hagar is the ancestor of those, those 12 tribes of Ishmael that will be listed in Genesis 25. So she does go back, she submits to what the angel says and returns to Abraham and Sarah. And we don't get the sense that her situation improves. Because later on in Genesis 21, we see her again in the wilderness. And maybe, Dave, you can read this, this final part of the narrative here in verse 8. Yeah, sure. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had warned Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. 
But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he's your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got him a wife from Egypt. So as I mentioned before, the narrative is clearly centered on Isaac as the child of the promise. But we have this really tender image here with Ishmael and Hagar not being forgotten. So Hagar says, you're the God who sees me. He's also the God that hears them. And the name Ishmael, of course, means heard by God. So it's not only the chosen people that have the ear of God. There's this quote that I love here by Walter Brueggemann. Maybe you can read that, Dave. Yeah, the narrative holds us to the tension so often found in the narrative, the tension between the one elected and the not elected, one who is treasured. It is, of course, evident that Ishmael's promise is short of the full promise given to Isaac, and yet it's considerable promise not to be denied. God is attentive to the outsider. God will remember all the children like a mother remembers her children. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. I think the promise that we we heard earlier on in Genesis that's made to Abraham of all peoples will be blessed through you. I think we're already starting to see that here and that these people that maybe aren't part of the the chosen people are still getting grafted in and are being seen and God is present with them too. And actually it's interesting in Genesis 25 later on when Abraham dies, we see both Isaac and Ishmael bury him together, which I think is a really powerful a short verse, but it's very powerful that they come together there. A class I'm taking right now is Introduction to the Hebrew Bible, and I have a very animated professor, Professor Tita, who describes the Hebrew Bible as, we talked about genre very early on in, in Thread, as being meditation literature, as something we, we chew on. And he actually describes it as the everlasting gobstopper of literature. Yeah, when you wrote the gobstopper, I had to look up what exactly does he mean by gobstopper, which <laughs> yeah, it's is not an like American jawbreaker. Candy, so, I, well, it, it's the name of a candy, but I, I still needed the definition. So, <laughs> oh, it's the jawbreaker I of literature. That. Like, you can't even swallow it. There's so much going yeah. on, I guess. It's, I love that. Yeah, it's I great. think it's a Child in the Chocolate Factory reference. But, yeah, exactly. There's so many ways to chew it, there's so many meanings, and we see that definitely here. I think we, as I said at the start, we can't do justice to it all. But one I wanted to kind of leave you all with is the way Hagar and Sarah will end up prefiguring some of the the narrative that we see in Exodus. 
So we had this idea of Sarah as the princess that casts out the Egyptian slave woman and her son. And later we will see the Egyptian princess, Pharaoh's daughter, take in the Hebrew slave and adopt him as her son. It's this idea of like even the non-chosen can be more righteous in some ways. Again, we see the chosen people in this account here mistreat and enslave an Egyptian, prompting her to flee into the wilderness. And that will parallel Israel later on, who will be mistreated and enslaved by the Egyptians, and they will ultimately flee into the wilderness. There are some clear linguistic parallels, even in these two chapters, Genesis 15 and 16, where in Genesis 16, we see Abraham say, your slave is in your hands, do with her whatever you think best. And in just the chapter before, God says, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers. And it's again, it's sojourners, it's that name, Hagar, will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. So there's so many parallels that, that it's incredible mm. um, that you can draw from here. But yeah, as Hagar will be a stranger in Abraham's house, Israel will be strangers in a foreign land too. But as we've said, just as God hears the cries of Ishmael, he will hear the cries of Israel. And I think that's a um, a pattern that God offers hope to the oppressed that I think God wants us to to take from this story here. I just, I was amazed at that connection. I had never drawn that parallel Mm. before. This idea that, that the way Abraham would treat or Sarah would treat was also the way they would Mm. be treated. That's, that's just such a powerful connection right. there. And, and we see that, of course, play out as well. So there's, there's so many profound and inspiring threads in these narratives, as we've already talked about. I mean, Sarah behaving badly <laughs> is an unfortunate yeah. pattern that plays out with God's people, that just because God's people are chosen doesn't mean they're righteous right. uh, all the time. And God doesn't pull punches. It's just, it's, we see in the text the real transparent raw stories Mm. but also what's powerful to me about hagar is that in so many ways you could say she's been she's a victim of abuse Mm. here and yet god sees her and honors her own righteousness Mm. and how she treats her son and how she honors and and submits to uh her owners in the sense of property as you talked about so it's really, really powerful. Mm-hmm. So I think this story also ties into what we talked about in our episode nine, Human Limitations. When we talked about human limitations in Genesis three, we talked about generic, all human beings have limitations. Like we all have physical limitations. We all have spiritual limitations. We all have moral limitations. But there's something that this story does that addresses a different thing that People are born into a specific context that is beyond their control, Mm. right? Hagar couldn't help the fact that she was a slave. That was her reality for her life. And so when we think about that as another limitation of the way that we are engaged in this world, we think we don't choose our country we're born in. We don't choose the family of origin that we come from. We don't choose a lot of times our circumstances. And so in our world, many people are born into slavery or poverty or abusive homes. So I think the question, Hannah, maybe that we have to wrestle with and would love to hear your thoughts on, what's the message from this 
story, this narrative about people who find themselves in less than ideal or even dire situations? What's the message? Yeah, I think that's a great point. That God sees you, I think would be the, if you were to ask Hagar that question, I think that's what she might say. You're right, he doesn't take away circumstances often. As we notice with the prophecy about Ishmael, like there's going to be hardship, but the Lord remained with him and he was present with him as he grew up. And I think it's it's significant that she calls him the God who sees me. I love that it sees and not watches me. <laughs> watches sounds almost like, mm. oh, he's observing my every move. He's critical. But it's, no, he sees. He sees her status. As you right. said, he identifies you're a slave of Sarai, but you're Hagar too. He names her. I actually wrote a poem last semester called Elroy and I, <laughs> which is from the perspective of Hagar. Maybe one day I'll share it in the podcast. But it's yeah, she I like enjoys that. this special okay. relationship with him. I think the oppressed do. Beautiful. Well, thank you for just taking us through these stories and making those connections for us. I think it's, you know, as this narrative continues, it's really powerful to see God's faithfulness in our failings as human beings and God's just continued grace and effort and patience. And yet we still ultimately our behavior has effect. Mm -hmm. And I think we see that as well. So it's it's really amazing. So next our next episode, we start getting into Jacob and we have another kind of new thing that starts happening with Jacob. We it's the first time we actually see a full life portrayed from a birth all the way to death. And so it'll be fun to talk about that in our next episode. Definitely. So, Hannah, it's always great to see you. Gilgamesh, good to see that you're still surviving back there. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. And we'll see you in our next episode, okay, Hannah. See you then. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for joining this Thread Conversation. We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content. Though I'm way down here, I get a better view of this boundless world that I'm going through. Yeah. I'm gonna find my